Bless the Lord, all you works of his in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray together. Father, we do want to bless you this morning. Lord, we know that when we come into worship uh, each week that we often are the ones that receive blessings. But Lord, if you would enable us today, we ask that you would help us to be a blessing to you, uh, to bring you joy today, to be pleasing in your sight, and to be faithful uh, to you during this time. I ask, Lord, as we look at this portion of your word today, that you would help me to honor you in it, that we would receive it with gladness, that whatever work you need to do in each heart today, Lord, that you would just have your way and that we would be in total submission to you, that we would be sensitive to your Holy Spirit and his work in our lives. And we thank you, Lord, that we have this word. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. If you have your copy of God's Word, you can be turning to Isaiah chapter 53 this morning. Isaiah 53. Now we've been in Matthew for quite some time, and when we were kind of laying things out, it just so happened that we had room for a little break today. So next week, uh, Pastor Chris will begin in Matthew 24, and uh, is going to be working through that chapter, uh, which will be an exciting time. It's a it's a very uh, hotly debated uh, chapter in scripture, but there's a lot of wonderful things in there about Christ. And so I would encourage you all to uh, be here for that. And especially for next week, as he does an introduction to that chapter, it's really important because it kind of sets the context of now that we've gone through 23 chapters in a row, it's easy to lose your place of where we're at in the story. So he's going to kind of set us up in there. But today, in light of the Christmas season and in light of the fact that we, that we have this opportunity to look at something else, uh, I just want to look at at one verse this morning, and that's Isaiah fifty three ten. Now, Isaiah fifty three is one of the greatest messianic passages in the Old Testament. It's called the the chapter of the suffering servant. Uh, and in, in fact, with many modern Jewish people, uh, if they're not familiar with Isaiah fifty three and you read it to them, they'll often reject it because they'll say, well, that's from the New Testament. That's talking about Jesus. And then you have to remind them, well, no, this was actually the prophet Isaiah. And so uh, Isaiah prophesied this about Christ somewhere around 600 to 700 years before he was born, before things like crucifixion were invented, before the Romans had uh, taken over the the land of Israel. Uh, The Lord spoke to Isaiah and gave him these words. And so we could look at the whole chapter. I would encourage you to read it. It's it's just really an incredible chapter of the amount of detail that Isaiah lays out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about Christ and, and his fulfillment of the role of Messiah. But this this uh, verse 10, 53 verse 10, is basically like the John three sixteen of the Old Testament. Most people, when they become a Christian, or even if they're not a Christian, and maybe they grew up in church, are familiar with John three sixteen. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And they would say that verse kind of summarizes the gospel. If you need to know the fundamentals of God's plan and that uh, Jesus Christ came to the earth, that he lived a sinless life, that he died for sinners and resurrected from the dead, and that everyone who puts their faith and trust in him alone for their salvation will be saved and, and will have that eternal life. 
And so we use that verse a lot of times to summarize the story of the gospel. But I want to argue this morning that Isaiah 53.10 is really like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, because in this one verse, we also see the entire gospel laid out in this one verse. So if you found your way there, Isaiah 53.10, if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's word. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You may be seated. So I want to title the message this morning, A Child Was Sent. A Child Was Sent. Now we understand this is talking about Jesus. This is talking about him fulfilling his ministry, which we understand later on, he goes to the cross, he suffers uh, for his people, he takes on God's wrath for them in their place and is able to provide salvation for them. But we need to make sure that we don't forget that this is the same Jesus who came as a baby. And during this Christmas season, we often think of baby Jesus and we sing songs about baby Jesus and we forget that that baby had a purpose that that baby grew up and became uh, the, the man, the God-man that we know of in the rest of Scripture. And that uh, sometimes it's easy to take the Easter story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and the Christmas story and have a big gap in between. And we forget that it's really two parts of the same story. And so a child was sent in order to accomplish Isaiah 53.10. That child, uh, you could even go so far as to say that that child was destined for wrath. That before the foundation of the world, God had planned to pour out his wrath on this baby. Now, the baby grew up to become a, a full-grown man in the man Jesus. But that, that was God's plan from the beginning. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have that plan for any of my children. My plan is not to pour out my wrath on them as, as they grow up. And I did not bring them into this world, so to speak, for the purpose of pouring out wrath on them. But that's exactly why Jesus was born, in order to uh, take the wrath for his people. I mean, that, that is the good news, is that if you're in Christ this morning, you were not a child destined for wrath, but Jesus was for you. In the same way that you should have received the wrath of God, Christ has received that instead. And so there's four ways uh, that a child was sent to us in this passage that I want us to look at this morning. The first is that a child was sent to submit. He was sent to submit. Look at the first part there. That the Lord was pleased to, to crush him, putting him to grief. So let's talk about that. The first thing is, is we, we see that there's a providential humiliation. So that, that word for crushing there is this idea of, of humbling or humiliating uh, someone. So it's not talking about necessarily a physical crushing as much as it's talking about humiliating someone. Crushing someone by putting them into a, a, a lower estate than what they were in or demeaning someone, tearing someone down, that it pleased the Lord to humiliate him. And so it was a providential humiliation. Well, how do we know that it's providential? Because it says that God desired all of this. That word please also means desire. It was God's desire to humble Jesus. It was God's desire to do that. And it's providential because it was his plan before the foundation of the world. So it's not as though... Jesus was, came into the world by some kind of accident and God's just working with what he has or that God was given a limited number of options and he said, I'm just doing the best that I can here with this Messiah thing. It was 
Every single thing was intentional. Everything about his birth. Again, Isaiah is prophesying this six to 700 years before Jesus was even born. So we know for a fact that God's plan for Jesus to be providentially humiliated, for him to be humbled, was at least 600 years before he was born. But we know from Scripture that he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so before anything was made, that the one who made everything, that Scripture says everything that was made was made by him, that God fully planned even at that time for him to be humiliated. And that in his providence, he brought about all the circumstances of this humiliation. Think about it. How could God desire for the worst sin in history to be committed? The murder of his own son. Think about it. What's, sometimes we think in the garden that was the greatest sin, was Adam and Eve eating the fruit and cursing us all. The greatest sin was the murder of the Son of God. That was the greatest sin that ever happened. And yet Isaiah is revealing here that the Lord was pleased for that to happen that it was his desire for that to happen, for his son to be humiliated. Remember, remember the cross. Remember this baby. The, uh, Jesus did not come the first time in his glory. Think about uh, the humble beginning that he had as we think about the Christmas story. But how could God desire for the worst sin in history to be committed? How could he do that? The reason why is because that's only one part of the picture. God sees more than we see. He knows more than we know. His plans, it says his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So how are we able to look at something that was wicked? This is part of the reason why he gives us the scripture, right? Because it gives us a bigger picture than we're able to see. When Jesus came into the earth, even with the prophecies and everything that happened, there were so many people that still didn't see how could this be? Even, even that you remember Peter rebuked him. Well, surely I'll die for you, Jesus. You don't need to come here to die. And Jesus rebukes him. And why does he rebuke him? Because he's saying, you've missed it. You, you don't understand the bigger picture. Yes, I am going to have to die for sins. But there's more to the story than that. And God saw that before the foundation of the world because he planned it out. So from our limited perspective, it's all, all, often easy to see tribulations in our lives as meaningless evil until we see the greater plan of God. The Bible is full of stories about this. The first one that came to my mind when I was thinking about this is Joseph. If you know the story of Joseph, the classic phrase at the end, you know, what you, what his brothers intended for evil, God intended for good. What does that mean? That means that when he was falsely accused, when he was thrown into prison, when he was mistreated, all of those things that happened, none of it was meaningless. None of it was purposeless. It was all a part of God's plan of his divine decree for Joseph's life and as we look back at Scripture now, we see that Joseph had a tremendous privilege that many of us, most of us probably will never have. He had the privilege of being a type of Christ in the Old Testament. His testimony of suffering and being faithful to God and yet being able to be uh, exalted later uh, to leadership in Egypt, his testimony of that was a picture of Christ. And so in the midst of his difficulty, it could have been easy to look at the circumstances and just say, well, God's forgotten about me. These wicked people have done, done these things, and, and God has allowed them to do it, and he's just left me here. But we see at the end of the story that there was a bigger plan. And this, it's not prosperity gospel to say that God has an intention to prosper you as his child in his eternal plan. 
But God's pro- definition of prosperity is very different from an American's definition of prosperity. The reality is we have all of the riches and glory according to Christ. We have an inheritance in Christ. There is literally nothing that Jesus possesses, his, his, his riches, any of that. Uh, the scripture seems to even indicate that he even shares some of his glory with us when we're glorified. Who are we to deserve any kind of glory at all? And yet he would even share that with us. It's incredible. And so when we see difficulties in our lives, we see this humiliation. We see this. The Lord was pleased to crush him. How could the Lord be pleased to crush him? The reason why he was pleased to crush him is because he saw the end of the story. Uh, the illustration I use is, is uh, a, a person with a knife. You can have two situations where you have a person with a knife uh, who comes to you. Uh, if a person comes to you in general and cuts you with a knife, that's usually not good for you. It's usually not a good experience if someone just comes up and cuts you with a knife. However, if a surgeon cuts you with a knife, in general, it's actually a good thing. Now, both of them are painful. Both of them are dangerous. Both of them are harming you. And yet one of them is done for the purpose of uh, creating health and extending your life and uh, blessing you and removing things from you that need to be removed. The other is just malicious towards you. So the question is, in our experience with God, which one is he? Is he the surgeon or is he the robber? And we know from his nature, from his attributes, that all of his plans are good. And so when suffering comes into our life, we have to think about it. Okay, this feels a lot like if someone was against me. This seems like maybe the Lord is against me. And our faith has to not be in what we feel and what we experience, but it has to be in the character of God. And the Lord was pleased to crush him because his plan was good, which we'll see even at the end of this verse. So there's a providential humiliation when this child was sent to submit. He was sent to submit to being humbled. It's also a pitiful humiliation. The word grief here, putting him to grief. Uh, when we think of grief, we, we usually think of loss, uh, some kind of loss that we have if somebody dies or, or sadness. The word there can also be translated a weakness or a sickness, that the Lord made him weak, that the Father made him weak. And what does that mean? Well, there's obviously some mystery there. We don't fully understand how all that works, but the New Testament explains that Essentially, he laid aside his glory, not his divinity. When he came to the earth, he wasn't less God when he, was, uh, when he took on human flesh. He was fully God and fully man, still is, by the way. But that he took on weakness. What does that mean? Well, that means that a, a human form, a human nature is so much weaker than the nature of God, than the divine nature, that he had to allow himself, he had to submit himself to his father to become weak in order to accomplish this plan that the Lord had to humiliate him. You have to think about the fact that God is all-powerful. Nobody makes him do anything. Jesus is sovereign, which means the only way that Jesus can be made weak is if he submits himself to become weak. We see this even at the cross. He makes it clear. He could have called down legions of angels at the cross, wiped every human off the face of the earth, and just hit the reset button on everything. He did not have to be nailed to the cross. He did not have to be whipped. He did not even have to, even the fact that they accused him and brought him into court, he could just simply reply with, who are you to accuse me of anything? I'm the judge. He could have done any of that. And yet it says that he went like a lamb to the solar, that he was silent, 
that he that he stayed quiet. He didn't complain. He knew exactly what he was going to do, and he humbled himself and submitted himself through all of those things. Can you imagine if you've ever been disrespected by somebody, especially somebody that you think is lesser than you? Like one of the things is like as a dad, when my kids want to disrespect me and say something to me, I'm just like, it, you know, you kind of rear up a little bit, and you're like, you don't know who you're talking to. Like, I, like I made you, right? Uh, or as some people say, you know, I brought this, brought you into this world, I can take you out kind of attitude. That's ever more true with Christ. And the amount of humility that you have to have to allow people to do this, that the king of glory who owns everything, who is so glorified that no one could see him or they would die, who's so glorified that the Jews couldn't even use his name for fear of being killed for using the holy name of the Lord with their unholy mouths was born in a manger, in a feeding trough, in a cave, in the middle of nowhere to poor parents that nobody cared about. With all these animals and everything around, the, the humility of it, could, could it be any worse? You moms in here, uh, how would you like to, to go over under the bridge on Russ Avenue here where the homeless are and have to lay down and have your baby under the bridge next to some burning trash? where the homeless people are under the bridge right now. That would not that would that would be a very humble birth for your child to have that. And yet not only did Jesus have it, but nobody made it that way. He made it that way. He chose to have a birth in that way. So it's a pitiful humiliation. Why is it pitiful? Because of the amount of condescension that's required. When we really consider how much Jesus had to condescend to even come to the earth, even if he would have come as a king, he would have had to humble himself. Because there is no earthly king that compares to him. The, the, the most wealthiest, most famous, most glorious king that you can think of in history is still only a picture of the true king. So he would have had to humble himself. He would have had to lay aside glory for himself to even come as a king, but to come as a, as a poor baby in a town. Bethlehem was not necessarily a glorious town. It was kind of backwoods, Israel. So there, there's nothing glorious about this birth at all. And yet the only person that's ever been born that was even worth any glory is this baby, is this child that was sent. So he was sent to submit. The second thing I want you to see is that he was sent to sacrifice. A child was sent to sacrifice. Notice the second part of the verse there. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. And we've got to notice the language. One of the things we believe about the Bible is that uh, grammar matters when it comes to the Bible. The words of the Bible are there for a certain reason. So this isn't just the Holy Spirit giving the writers ideas to write about, but they are writing exactly what he wanted him to write, which means that we have to pay attention to what words are being used and how those words are being used because they're there for a purpose. So look at that sentence again. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. So we have to understand what that means. The first thing is, is that it's a personal offering. Nobody else can offer this Messiah as an offering. He has to render himself as an offering, which means there's no other priest that's qualified to offer this sacrifice. The Messiah could not be sacrificed by someone else. He has to do it himself. That's the only way it can be done. This is what Isaiah is saying. He would render himself as a guilt offering. So no other priest can do, and there's no other sacrifice that's acceptable. 
There's no animal or earthly possession that can replace this. So it doesn't say if he would render a guilt offering, he must render himself as a guilt offering. There is no substitute here because he is the substitute for us. So you can't substitute the substitute. He would render it himself. It's a personal offering. Listen, as Hebrews 10 explains it this way. I'm going to use a lot of Hebrews here because one, I love Hebrews, and two, it explains a lot of stuff, especially in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 10, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they can offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So what does Hebrews say? Hebrews says that the personal offering of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, is what was necessary to forgive sins. The writer of Hebrews is saying the bulls and the goats and all these animals that were sacrificed, none of them ever actually forgave sins. That the only forgiveness of sins that ever came in the, New, in the Old Testament was the same as what we have, which is believing God. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That was before the sacrificial system was established. So the writer of Hebrews is explaining here that all of these offerings, if, the, if any of them would have actually forgiven sins, then you would have just made the offerings and been done. But why did you have to do it every year? Because it's a reminder that there is a true offering coming, which actually will remove sins. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, the reason why we don't have to make animal sacrifices today is because we don't need a picture of the sacrifice. We have the sacrifice. We have the fulfillment. So you and I are different. We are not looking ahead to the forgiveness of sins by Messiah rendering himself as a guilt offering. We are looking back to Messiah rendering himself as a guilt offering, and we actually have forgiveness of sins this morning. There are no other sacrifices required, no other works required. It is fully satisfied. It was once for all time. And so he is the sacrifice that we are putting our, our faith and our trust into, and that's the same way for the Jews in the Old Testament. They were putting their faith and trust in the sacrifice of Jesus too. The, the bulls and the goats were just a symbol of Christ. So it has to be a personal offering if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He was sent to sacrifice. The other thing we see is that it's a penitent offering. So Christ is offering penance or payment for sins. Now let, let me explain that word penance. If you're not a Roman Catholic, you probably don't use that word on a regular basis. But penance is technically a sacrament in the Roman Catholic Church, and it basically means paying for your sins. That whenever you commit a sin, there's a certain payment you have to do. So, for instance, in Roman Catholicism, they might say, you've got to pray this many Hail Marys, and you've got to give this money to these people, or you've got to do this or that, and then you've done penance. You've made satisfaction for whatever that sin is, and since you've made satisfaction for that sin, then now you are considered uh, guiltless, or the, the penalty is removed for that sin. 
And we understand because of God's holiness and because of our inability to do anything holy that there is no penance that we can do. There is, we cannot do a good work. The, the biggest problem with us being saved by works is that we can't do one good work, not even one. So all these other religions that are out here about do this for this person and help the poor and do this, everything that you do is corrupted by your sin nature, everything that you do. And so if you could even do one good work, you might be able to cancel out one sin, maybe, but you can't even do one. So the amount of sins that you're able to cancel out before God is zero, which means you're totally without hope if you're trusting in your own ability, even this morning. If you, if you think that by doing something good that you're earning God's favor, you have no hope whatsoever of being saved with that kind of gospel. That's not, that's not even a gospel. The gospel means good news. That's really bad news if that's where you are this morning. The good news is, is that Christ's righteousness is such that not only is he able to do a good work, he's able to do all good works, and his righteousness extends beyond even him, his own self, because he has no sin that he has to atone for, to everyone who believes on him, which is an untold number of people. We have no idea how many people that is, but it's a lot more than one. So even if you were righteous, you might be able to even atone for yourself, if that was possible, which you can't. But certainly you wouldn't be able to atone for anybody else. And yet think about the fact that Jesus is so righteous that he's able to fill your account before God that had a negative balance before. He doesn't just bring it up to zero. He puts positive righteousness in there to where God sees you as holy and as pleasing to him as Christ himself is. And he does that for an untold amount of people. Think about how much righteousness you would have to possess in order to just well, imagine walking into the bank and saying, how many accounts do you hold in this bank? And they say, I hold a thousand accounts in this bank. How, how much money would have to go in that account for the computer to break and it not tell how much is, is in there? And they say, you know, one trillion dollars. Okay, I have a thousand trillion dollars. I want to max out every account in this bank until the computer system breaks. That's what Jesus did for, for his people. Ma you're maxed out this morning before God. There's no more righteousness that can be added to you at all. Your account is full. Uh, there, and there's nothing that you can add, add into there. It's completely full with Christ. Think about how much righteousness it would actually take, how much perfection it would take to be able to fill every single account for everyone who believes. And we're talking about direct deposit, right? Instantaneously, when you trust in Christ, that account is full. The money's in the bank because he's already purchased it. It's already there. Um, that's good news. So it's a penitent offering because... Jesus is making penance through this sacrifice. He, he is making a payment for sins. Now, this is something that, that just blows my mind. And again, the more that you study the Old Testament and you see Christ in the Old Testament, it just makes it so rich and, and beautiful. The guilt offering, there's different types of offering in the Old Testament for different types of sins. But the guilt offering that it's talking about here was used when a person lied or broke a covenant. So when a person lied or broke a covenant, the, the law said that there's two steps. You have to do a step with man and you have to do a step with God. So if you defraud somebody, if you rob somebody or you make a promise to them and you don't keep good on your promise, especially like a business transaction, that your responsibility is, is to go back to that person to repay them whatever it is that you've defrauded them of or, or taken from them plus 20%. So you have to add 20% on the top basically as a, uh, punitive damages like we would have in court now of basically for wasting their time or for taking advantage of them, you would add another 20% on the top. You remember Zacchaeus? 
who was a tax collector who had made all this money. Remember, he went back to Jesus and said, I'm going to actually pay them back fourfold what I owe them. In other words, I'm not even going to just do what the law requires. I'm going above and beyond the law, which was a sign to Jesus that it wasn't just about obeying the law for Zacchaeus, but it was actually a sign of repentance of, uh, 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 I'm going to do more than I have to do because I see that that's how you are, Jesus. I'm going to follow you in that example. So this guilt offering had two steps. The first step with man is you go, you pay him back, plus 20% of whatever he owes you. The second step is, now that you have forgiveness from man because you've made things right with man, you've got to make things right with God. So then you come into the temple and you offer this guilt offering in order to receive forgiveness of the sin. So you receive forgiveness from the man by paying him back, but the only way you can receive forgiveness from God is by offering this guilt offering sacrifice. This is exactly what Christ did for us. Isaiah is saying here, he has to render himself as what? As a guilt offering, which means he has to do two things. He has to make things right with the person with whom the covenant was broken. And then he has to offer a sacrifice to God for the forgiveness of sins. Our father Adam broke his covenant with God. God made a covenant with him. Moses uh, made a covenant. Abraham had a covenant. All these had a covenant. And none of them were able to perfectly keep that covenant. So every man and woman that has ever made a covenant with God has broken that covenant. And according to God's law, reparations must be made for, for that to happen. That covenant must be restored and forgiveness must be asked. It's not just enough to pay God back for what we've taken from him. That's not enough. That there also has to be a blood sacrifice in order for the guilt to be removed. So what did Jesus do? You ever wonder why why did Jesus not just come down as a full-grown man and die on the cross for sins and it's over? Because that only satisfies one part of the guilt offering. That, that will remove the guilt of sin before God, but it doesn't fulfill the covenant. How does he fulfill the covenant? Through obedience to the law. So he had to do both. So why did he come as a baby and not as a teenager or not as an adult or not as an older man? Because he had to grow up under the law, under the same covenant that all of Israel had grown up under, and perfectly keep the covenant. Keep it better than Adam, keep it better than Moses, keep it better than Abraham, keep it better than Noah, keep it better than any of them. And he was able to perfectly keep it. In other words, pay God back the covenant of every way that they failed, Jesus succeeded and perfectly kept that covenant with God and paid reparations for that covenant so that the covenant is completed in Christ, that he has fulfilled all of it. That satisfies one requirement. And not only that, but when you think about the extra 20% on top, Jesus says the law isn't even enough. Even obeying the law is not enough. That it has to be from the heart. So not only did Jesus fulfill the law to the letter of what God's law actually said, but when he raises the standard of God's expectation, he also meets that. When Jesus says, uh, if you looked at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart already, that means not only did Jesus not commit adultery, but he didn't even do it in his heart. So even those like the Pharisees who were able to keep the law and supposedly keep the covenant couldn't keep it to the perfect extent that God demanded, and yet Jesus did. He perfectly kept the law, inside and outside, not just for people to see, but inside, he perfectly kept the law of God. So he satisfied that covenant, and then he had to go to the cross to be the blood sacrifice in order for the guilt offering to be complete, which is the reason why we are not under the law, so to speak, today. It doesn't mean that God's law is bad. It doesn't mean that it's gone. But it does mean that the demands of the law do not follow on us because we are not saved by our obedience to the law. We're saved by Christ's obedience to the law. So not only does he substitute us in our guilt, 
by dying for our sins on the cross, but he also substitutes for us in his obedience. So that whenever you fail, whenever you read the law of God, whenever you read the Ten Commandments, and you're like, man, I've, I've really messed these up. How, how could I ever be forgiven? Well, the answer is, is you can't be forgiven. But Christ actually perfectly kept that. And because he's your substitute, then as far as God's concerned, you have kept all of the Ten Commandments. You have kept all of the law. And not just through obedience to the sacrifices and the feast and these things, but even in your heart. God considers your heart having been a heart that has kept the law because that's what Jesus did. That's good news. So you don't just have the forgiveness of sins this morning. You have perfect righteousness this morning. You are unblemished before God. When he looks at you, he sees you the same way that he sees his perfect son, Jesus. We forget that sometimes. There's nothing more that you could do to make God love you or be more pleased with you than he is right now. There's nothing you could do. So it's a penitent offering. He's making payment for sins, not only through his death, burial, and resurrection, but also through his obedience. 1 Peter 2, 21-25, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. It's talking about the inside. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who just judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. How secure is your soul this morning? Well, it depends on how good your shepherd is. If you've got the, if you've got the right shepherd, there's no wolf, lion, bear, nothing that's going to come get you. They're going to have to come through him to get to you. You are secure in Christ this morning. You have perfect righteousness in Christ this morning. So we see that the child was sent to submit and the child was sent to sacrifice. Next, we see that a child was sent to save. He was sent to save. Look at the next part there. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. What is that saying there? It's saying Messiah will see God's offspring. Messiah will prolong the days of the offspring. So we see two results from this passage. What happens when he renders himself as a guilt offering? The first thing is we see a producing result. We see that God has established heirs for himself through Christ. So you are a brother or sister, not only of one another, but of Christ. You're in the family. You receive an inheritance. You receive a blessing from your heavenly father, the same way that they did in the Old Testament. And so how is this produced? How is, how is God able to adopt more children into his family? It's only because Messiah has rendered himself as a guilt offering. This is the only way. So how is it that you were able to be adopted? In the, how, how could a sinner like you be adopted into the family of God, given perfect righteousness, and have full standing before God, at, the same as his son Jesus, as the firstborn son, which you guys know from the Old Testament, the firstborn gets the predominant blessings, all these kind of things that you were not just heirs, but joint heirs with Christ. In other words, you received the same blessings as the firstborn child. How could a sinner like you receive the blessings of the firstborn child? It's because he's going to render himself as a guilt offering. That's what, that's what Isaiah is saying. This is the only way that it can happen. So it's a producing result. Genesis 15, 2-6, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. 
And Abram said, Since you have given me no, no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to them, To him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So what was he believing? Was, was he believing in his descendants and his physical descendants? No, remember there was a promise in Genesis 3.15 that they were looking towards. Lord, how could the seed of the woman crush the seed of the serpent if I'm your chosen nation and I have no children? How could that prophecy in Genesis be true if, if I don't have any children? And the Lord tells him, look at the stars. If you can number the stars, that'll tell, tell you how many descendants you're, you're going to have. And of course, he unfolds that of saying, you're going to be the father of many nations. So what is he saying? He's saying that promise that you're looking for, it's not just for Israel. It's for every nation. And that coming from you, that this Messiah, this promised one coming from you, this child that is sent to save is not the savior of the Jews only. He's the savior of everyone who believes. And that that's the fulfillment that we see in scripture. That's our hope today. I don't know about you guys. I'm, I'm not Jewish. I'm not ethnically Jewish. And so if Jesus was only the Messiah of the Jews, then I have no Messiah. I have no salvation. I'm just stuck with my words. But praise God that I'm able to enter in because Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. God, if you said that you promised that the seed of the woman is going to crush the seed of the serpent and you said that you're going to do it through me and you said that you will provide me children even though I'm old and my wife can't have children, if you said it, then I believe it. That's faith, is believing God for what, for what he says. You have faith this morning? God, Jesus says that everyone who comes to him, he won't turn them away. Do you, do you have faith that you have perfect righteousness this morning? If you look at what you did this last week, the answer is no, if that's what you're looking at. If you look to Christ, the answer is yes. The question is, is Jesus still good enough for God today? If the answer is yes, then guess what? You're secure. That's good, that's good news for you this morning. And he will be tomorrow, and he will be the day after that. Jesus is always going to be able to satisfy God even when we can't. That's the whole reason why he came. So it's a producing result, but it's also a prolonged result. He will prolong his days. What does that mean? That's talking about eternal life. How are we able to prolong our days? Because we receive eternal life. How do we do it? Because a child was sent to sacrifice. He offered himself as a guilt offering, and now we are able to prolong our days. Ephesians 1, 3-14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. How are we holy and blameless before him? Because he offered himself as a gift. Offering. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having pre been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, 
to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So what is Paul saying there? He's saying that, how do you know you're in Christ? Because God has made a pledge. You know what that word pledge means? It's a, it's a financial term for a down payment. God put a down payment in your account. It's called the Holy Spirit. He placed the Holy Spirit in you as a down payment to do what? To, to assure you that he will finish what he started. And so when you look at your life, when you look at your sin and you say, how could I be so sinful? How, how, could, I, uh, how could I make any progress in, in my faith in Christ at this point? How, how, am I even a better Christian than I was five years ago or 10 years ago? I don't feel like I'm moving along enough. The question is, do I have the Holy Spirit? Do I have the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Do I see him working in my life? And then you look at that. It's the same way as uh, if the bank's wondering if you're going to make your payment or not, they're going to look at that down payment and say, well, if they put a big down payment on that house, then they must have the money to be good for it. The difference is sometimes we're not good for it because we run out of money. But guess what? God doesn't run out. And so when he puts a down payment, he is able to finish that which he started. That good work which he began in you, he will complete until the day of Christ Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is the assurance that we have that God's going to do what he said he's going to do. And so we have an eternal adoption. We have a prolonged result. And we are offspring because he rendered himself with the guilt offering. And so God does not change. Uh, the big word for that is immutability. He does not change. Not only did God make up his mind about you before you were born, but he chose you before anything was made. That's what we just read in Ephesians. He chose you. His decision is final. God does not change his mind. So if you wonder uh, how secure you are, a, a, a pastor friend of mine, he, he, says, he says that often. He said, I'm so saved, I couldn't go to hell if I wanted to. Because God has made up his mind. You cannot change his mind. There's nothing that you can do that will change his mind. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, well, that's like that once saved, always saved doctrine that you hear around here. Well, yeah, I prayed a prayer one time, and now I can live like the devil for the rest of my life, and I'm going to go to heaven because, you know, I read the sinner's prayer at VBS when I was five years old. That's not what we're talking about. Don't think of it as once saved, saved always saved. Think of it as once chosen, always chosen. Because, again, the emphasis on your salvation isn't on you. It's on God doing what he wants, making a people for himself, redeeming a people for himself. It's not about us. It's about him. So it's not once saved, always saved. If I did something, I prayed a prayer, or I did whatever. It's once chosen, always chosen. So the question isn't, uh, am I good enough to stay saved? The question is, has God changed his mind about his elect? And the Bible's answer is no. He does not change his mind. Once he has made a decision, that's final. And, and he made the decision before any of us were here anyways. So there's nothing you can do now that will change his mind that he didn't already know before the foundation of the world when he chose you anyways. Remember, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So he didn't send Jesus for like the good people and then the other people over here, Jesus didn't die for them. No, he sent them for the wicked. And why did he choose you? I have no idea. I have no idea why he chose me either. I'm not better than anybody else. But I know that if he did, then it's, then it's not up to me anyways. He made up his mind. He's God. He does whatever he wants. I'm just thankful that he chose me. I don't understand it all, but I'm thankful that he did. The last thing I want you to see is that this child was sent to succeed. He was sent to succeed. We saw he was sent to submit, to sacrifice, to save, and now to succeed. Look at that last sentence. This is, this is good. 
and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This tells us two things about God's will here. The first is that it's a pleasurable will. The Lord does not delight in punishment. Ezekiel 33, 10 through 11 says, Now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have spoken, saying, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How, can we, how then can we survive? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? So what is God's will? He says right there, he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. Now, did the wicked die and did they perish? Yes, hell is real. Jesus talks about it more than anybody in the Bible. Jesus believed in hell. He believed that there's a real eternal hell that people are going to go to and the wicked are going to be sent there. Does God delight in that? Is he pleased about uh, people suffering in hell? No, he clearly says here that he does not delight in the death of the wicked. That's not something that he's pleased with. But we know that what he does pleases him, that he has a pleasurable will. So what is the good pleasure of the Lord? Well, we know that the good pleasure of the Lord isn't in the punishment of the wicked, that that is not what his good pleasure is. So what is his good pleasure? His good pleasure is the salvation of his elect. That's what pleases him. What, what pleases the Lord? What pleases the Lord is that this plan that he laid out from the beginning to redeem the people for himself works. It actually works. And that you and I belong to him now, that, that he is able to give us his inheritance, to adopt us into his family. All the good things that we talked about today, it succeeded. Je Jesus didn't give it his best shot. That's what Roman Catholicism teaches. You get your baptism, your original sins removed, you earn up sins. Jesus died so that you can have your original sin removed at baptism, and that gives you a head start. But you're on your own for the rest of it. You've got to come to the church. You've got to take mass. You've got to do the sacraments. You've got to do confession. You've got to do penance. You've got to do, 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 do. All these things to, to counteract your sins for the rest of your life, and Jesus is designed to kind of give you a leg up. That's not... Anything that we've read in Scripture this morning doesn't show a Jesus like that. That's not good news because, again, if, if the good news is Jesus is helping you out today, you're not saved. Nobody's saved. Everyone is condemned because no one can do a single good work. And so the good news is that Jesus has already done everything required, 100%. You are 100% justified before God. You have no guilt before God whatsoever regardless of what you did yesterday, what you're going to do today, what you're going to do tomorrow, paid in full. All of it is paid in full. When he said it is finished on the cross, he wasn't being metaphorical. He was being literal. All of the debt is paid. It is finished, which is also a financial term, by the way. The, the, lo the loan has been satisfied. The loan of the covenant of there's coming a day. I'm, I'm loaning out a Messiah to you. He's here. The payment is made. The loan is, is paid for. It's done. It is finished. So it's a pleasurable will that God has, and then it's a prosperous will. So it's not just his good pleasure to save us, but it also says that this will that God has to save his people is going to prosper in the hand of the Messiah. What does that word prosper mean? That, that word prosper means advance. It means that it's going to go, go out into the earth, that it's going to advance and increase in doing that. Think about this. I, I was trying to think of... Uh, an example of this, and I was thinking about Balaam in the Old Testament, in Numbers 23, if you go back and read it later. Balaam was this sorcerer guy, and uh, this king was trying to get him to curse Israel. And every time he would try to curse Israel, the Lord was like, no, nah, this is what you're going to say. And he kept blessing Israel and said, and the guy's like, listen, I didn't hire you.
to bless Israel. I hired you to curse Israel. And this guy's like, listen, I have to do what God says. I'm just the messenger here. God said he's not going to curse Israel. He's going to bless Israel. You got to deal with him about it. Like if you don't, if you don't like the pizza, I'm just a delivery boy. I didn't make the pizza. That's what ba that's what Balaam's saying here. Okay, Num Numbers twenty three. This is what he says about Israel when uh, when Balak is saying curse Israel. He says God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. When he is blessed, then I cannot revoke it. He has not observed misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. I wonder who that king is that's among them. God brings them out of Egypt. He is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. At the proper time it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel what God has done. Behold, a people rises like a lioness, and as a lion it lifts itself. It will not lie down until it devours the prey and drinks the blood of the slain. So that was his curse for Israel is, I can't say what God hasn't said, but what God did say is there's a king among Israel. And as much as you might try to curse Israel, one day it's like a lioness and it's going to rise up against its enemies. In other words, the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in the hand of the king, in the hand of Messiah. And why are we here today in Waynesville, North Carolina, when Israel is thousands of miles away, believing in a Jewish Messiah? It's because the good pleasure of the Lord prospered in his hand. And it's still prospering in his hand today. When you go and you proclaim the gospel to somebody and you share the good news that you heard today, hey, did you know that you can have peace with God? And I'm not just talking about forgiveness. I'm talking about blessing from God. Did you know that, that God has an open invitation to the world? He calls all men everywhere to repent. That we preach to everybody, anybody who wants to come to him. Not only will he offer you the forgiveness of sins, but he'll fill your bank account up spiritually, right? He will prosper you. Why is he going to do that? The reason why he's going to do that is because it's the good pleasure of the Lord. He loves saving people. He loves sinners. That's why he did all this. He loves sinners. And it prospers in his hand. So when you go out and proclaim the gospel, should your confidence be in, have I studied apologetics and do I know all the ways to debate with people? Or what if this person asked me some hard question about the Bible that I don't know? Or what if they're mean to me? Or what if they're, whatever your excuse is, that, that's all relying on something else. What you need to rely on is this promise here that Isaiah, that Isaiah gives us. How do I know that Barberville Baptist Church is going to grow spiritually? How do I know that more people in Waynesville are going to be saved next year than are, are this year? It's, it's not because of me. It's not because of anybody that's doing any preaching or anything else. It's because the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in the hands of the Messiah, which means if Jesus is being preached, God is saving people because that's his good pleasure. So your confidence in evangelism isn't in your ability. It's in God's ability. And so the question is, is somebody that you know, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, maybe somebody you even uh, encountered in, the, in this last weekend with the holidays of getting family together, God is ready to save that person. God is ready to do that. And he wants to prosper that person, but that they got to have the message. How will they hear without somebody preaching to them? So you have to go to that person. And you know what? If they reject it, they're not rejecting you. Again, you're just the messenger. And so you're bringing that message to them, and you're trusting that the good pleasure of the Lord to save people is going to prosper in the hands of Messiah. So how do you want, how should, how should this church prosper? 
How does Barberville Baptist Church prosper? By, put, by, by putting it in the hands of the Lord. If we say, this is Jesus' church, he builds it, he does what he wants to do, and we put it in the hands of the Lord, it will prosper. Why? Because he's able, because he's Messiah. If it's in my hands or the elders' hands or church members' hands or whoever, if it's any of our hands, we'll mess it up. But if we get out of the way and we say, you are the Messiah, it's your church, you build it the way that you want, you do it, we just want to be your servants, it will prosper. That's our church growth strategy here. Is it programs? Is it cool music? Is it whatever? It's not any of that. Our church growth strategy is get out of the way and let Jesus do what he wants. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Let's pray together. Father, that is our desire this morning. That Lord, this is your church. You are the longest standing member of this church. You've given more to this church than anyone else has ever given. You've sacrificed more for this church than anyone ever has. You have more authority in this church than anybody in this room. And Lord, we just acknowledge that this morning and we thank you for that. We thank you that you love us, that you demonstrated your love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Lord, what a great reminder this morning. Lord, we, we just we can't adore you enough when we consider how much Christ laid aside to come as that baby with the plan that you had. Lord, it's more than we can understand, and it's so humbling to think that the King of Glory would, would come down so low for us. Incredibly humbling, Lord. And so we just thank you this morning. We just, we just want to say that you're a good God, that you give good gifts to your children. And Lord, we just don't even have the words for your greatness this morning. We thank you for your love. We can't do anything for you. We just, we just receive what you've done. And it's more than we can bear. And so Lord, as we prepare our hearts for your table, Lord, just help us to be mindful again of the humility of Christ and your great love for us, that we could even, that you would even invite us to your table, Lord. It's just a, more than, than we can even comprehend. And so, Father, we just thank you for that. In Jesus' name.